Nier, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the transformation journey. And well, and just before starting, I want to, like for people listening, uh, mention uh, my, my friend uh, Haritnik, who was the one who connected me uh, to you. And so I am thankful to him for for doing that and well yeah i also thank you for for coming today and well today i want to talk to you about your book indestructible um and yeah about many lessons that i found interesting about your journey and yeah um stuff will be cool and yeah. so i would like to start with an introduction to yourself <clears throat> and this morning i was listening to to a podcast interview uh to you and then it you were asked like about your journey uh, from a for, yeah from being like involved in business to being an author could you share that experience and how that transition happened sure so uh in college i was a journalism co-major and uh uh i always i i enjoyed writing uh not always but i actually took a few there was a few seminal moments in my life that actually uh, got me to love writing. I'm actually dyslexic. So it's always been very hard for me to, to, to read, uh, mm. which is weird that now I'm an author. <laughs> yeah. I think there's part of this of the story wrapped up in there as well. Probably you have to psychoanalyze that one. But anyway, in, in college, um, I really enjoyed the process of, um, uh, of explanatory journalism, you know, trying to, to, uh, to educate myself through the process of writing. I think one of the beautiful things about writing is that, if you write clearly, you think clearly. Uh, whereas many times when people speak, they can, you know, bullshit all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But to to to, it's much harder to to trick people uh, through through writing. <laughs> you know, like right, <laughs> you have to think clearly in order to write clearly. And yeah. so I really like that process of of writing uh, in order to learn. I think it's an underutilized tool. So yeah, so I always enjoyed writing uh, since since college, um, and then I didn't go into being a reporter because I saw how much reporters get paid. <laughs> That's crazy. I can't yeah. I can't raise a family on that, and so I decided to go into business. And uh, my my other co major was uh, econ, and uh, so I got a job as a consultant, and I did that for a few years. Hated it. <laughs> decided to start my own company, so I started a solar energy business back when nice. solar energy was just uh having a, a revival just getting started yeah <laughs> uh, this would have been 2003 so there were almost no people doing solar back then and then of mm -hmm. course it became a huge industry uh we sold the first company that i started uh and that's kind of how, kind of how we got on our feet uh started i say we my, my wife and i started the company together and we were bought out by a private equity firm and then um uh when i then i went to business school uh, only applied to one school that uh, if I got in that I'd figure out how to sell the business and that's what <laughs> happened. And uh, so I went to, went to Stanford Graduate School of Business and after Stanford started another business and uh, that business was not as successful. We raised a bunch of venture capital, but it didn't do as well. It didn't, wasn't a great exit. It was a, it was what we call an aqua hire where, you know, basically they bought the, the staff, the talent. Um, mm -hmm. And it was bought by a company that then got bought by Yahoo. Um, and uh then uh, what would I? What the the big benefit of that company, the second company that I started, was that I was at the intersection of gaming and advertising, and I had a front row seat to see the rise of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp. And I was really in the valley at the right place at the right time as these companies were really hitting their stride, and uh, really got this you know the, this this vantage point to see how they build these companies uh, and these products to hook us 
And mm. uh, what I what I wanted to do was to steal their secrets. Frankly, <laughs> I wanted to learn how to build a habit forming product myself. And uh, who better to to learn it from than my friends who worked at many of these companies? So I collected what I learned. And I started just documenting it, just putting it on my blog as here's what I'm learning. Like, look at these psychological uh, tricks that these companies are using. Um, not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, I, I think a lot of people think that there's like something sinister going on. There's nothing <laughs> sinister. I mean, these products are designed to be engaging because that's what we want. We want them yeah. to be engaging. Uh, so, so what I want to do though, is to, to ask, you know, could we expand the use of this psychology to other sorts of products, right? Could we get people hooked uh, to uh, exercise or hooked to education or hooked to saving money or hooked to, you know, mm -hmm. all kinds of healthy behaviors, healthy habits. And so that became uh, what I wrote about on my blog. Then I got asked by a former professor to teach a class with him on the stuff I was writing about. Uh, so I started teaching at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I became a lecturer in marketing. And then later I moved over to the Hassel Planner Institute of Design at Stanford. Then I published my first book, Hooked, which was basically the, the, the class in book form, uh, which was mm -hmm. all about how to build habit-forming products. Uh, I started investing in companies using my model and that's professionally what, what I do is I look for companies that use the hook model to build good habits in people's lives. And so I've invested in uh, several unicorns so far that I've, you know, used the hook model for good. Mm -hmm. Um, and then more recently about, the, uh, uh, you know, late 2019, I wrote my second book indistractable, which is about the other side of the coin. So if hooked is about how to build good habits then indistractable is about how do we break the bad habits, mm -hmm. uh, namely around distraction. So the subtitle is how to control your attention and choose your life. Yeah, well, before actually getting into some parts of indistractable, which I loved, I would like you to uh, sort of mention. So in indistractable, you mentioned the process to like uh, become indistractable and we will get into that. But I, I'm interested like in knowing what is the process uh, for, for hooked and can that model be applied to any business and any product? No, so it's only good for products that form repeat engagement. So many products don't need repeat engagement. So for example, uh, if you buy car insurance, right? You don't use car insurance that frequently, you buy it and hopefully you never have to use it. So that's <laughs> not a product that would ever need to form a habit, but many other products, if they don't get people to change their behavior frequently, the, the company goes out of business, right? So when you think about, you know, learning a new language or saving money or exercising or eating right or taking your medication, all of these things require us to change consumer habits. And so the hook model, which is the basis of my first book, is about these four basic steps called the trigger, action, reward, and investment, that through successive cycles through these hooks, this is how our preferences are shaped, how our tastes are formed, and how these habits take hold. So it's not that every product needs to be habit forming. It's that mm -hmm. if your product needs to be habit forming, then you need a hook. So the first question is, does your business even need a habit? Many products don't need to become habit forming. But if your product does need a habit, you better make sure you have a hook built in. Yeah. Um, so with I've got two main projects, the podcast and the reader lounge, the reader lounge, like the business part of it is helping authors with advertisement for their books. And you were in the advertising industry. Does mm. like marketing and advertising need this hook model or can it just be like uh, one thing done once and that's it? Well, what are you trying to get people to do? What's the behavior you want to change? So what I'm what like with with my brand, what I'm trying to do with authors is to create experiences around their books. Yeah, their new published books. Um, 
to engage with the community and make an impact. But that's like only one time with one mm -hmm. book. And if they publish more books, then more times. Um, Give me an yeah, example. Yeah, what, what would be a way that you would increase uh, the impact of a book? What, what would be something you would do for the author or with the author? So currently what I, what I am trying to do is like to create this uh, experience, as I told you, and it, it has like four main stages, like the first one, which is just like an introduction. Then the second one, which is like actual marketing, mostly content marketing. The third one, which is engagement. And that includes like a giveaway and, the, and some mastermind sessions. And the final part, which is like uh, just a wrap up and a recap of what of what we did. And I think that mm -hmm. mostly for the, like the third part for the masterminds and for the giveaways, maybe yes, for the authors, but also for my audience, I would like to build something that is actually um, sustainable and that can happen frequently and, mm -hmm. that, and something uh, that people engage with usually. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is where a hook model can become very handy because, you know, part of the part of what I see a lot is people doing one off campaigns that after they're done, they go nowhere. So we put all this effort into building something and then people never use it again, which is really sad. Whereas if you build a habit around a product now it becomes something that's used forever and ever, hopefully. Right. If you can, if you're willing mm. to build a habit behind it. So it's really about following these these four basic steps of a trigger action reward investment. Uh, it's not easy to do, but it certainly can be done. Uh, but that's where we have to follow the, this this model, right? Of first mm -hmm. asking ourselves, what's the trigger? Uh, meaning, what's the the internal trigger, the the emotion that we are satisfying for the user? Then the action, the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. What's the reward, and how can it be made more fulfilling? And then finally, what's the investment, the bit of work the user does? to improve the product with use. And it's only if you have that four steps that you'll form a habit. So, you know, putting out content into the world isn't going to become a habit. It's missing some critical steps, right? Mm -hmm. It's missing, namely the investment phase. What am I doing with the product that makes it better with use? Think about how Facebook, the more you use it, the smarter the algorithm gets. So it serves you better and better mm -hmm. content. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of forms of investment, um, uh, data, uh, uploading content, reputation, skill, all kinds of forms of, of, of investment that make the product better with use. So simply putting out content, like a book is not a habit forming product. Like when I publish mm. a book, I know that's not going to be a habit, right? <laughs> because you don't read a book again and again and again, you read it once and you're done with it. But that means, uh, you know, publishers have to crank out more and more and more and more books. They can't mm -hmm. just stop and say, oh, we published one book and we're done. <laughs> Uh, unlike, you know, uh, 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 many other products that are, are habit forming, you build the platform once and people use it and use it and use it. So it has to follow this model. It has to be something that has all four steps of the hook model involved. And, you know, just before getting into indestructible, one more question that I have is like sure. in experience based businesses. Um, so for example, I've got this friend, he's called Emilio and he's got a business called Live Beyond and they create these experiences in different uh, cities around the world um, for uh, yeah people who work remotely, basically. And before and after the experience, before and after all the productivity tips they give them, before the, the traveling they do and everything, they ask them uh, like to answer some questions and that way like they can they can actually help them to to make this experience meaningful and after the the experience um, they use the feedback that that people give them um, like to actually improve the the experience for the next time 
like and could that doing. yeah could that could that be applied for for the hook uh, model yeah. so that sounds like a great investment right that mm -hmm. sounds like something that i'm doing to make the product better and better with use like shaping preferences uh putting something into the product to improve it the more i use it that's that's great that's the investment phase now we need to make sure they have the other three phases as well. Is there mm -hmm. a clear trigger that's present? Uh, is the action easy enough to do? You know, one of the problems with physical products, unlike the products that we find on our phones, right? Our phones are right here. They're super easy to use. Mm -hmm. So if there's physical effort, so when, when I've seen many companies that, you know, have experiences for people where they, where they uh, have trouble becoming a habit is that it's, it's hard, right? I got to book it and coordinate and think through it. And do I want this experience or that experience? That's what tends to make those type of products not habits. If they're not successful, that's why too much friction. Um, so you see every business has its own challenge, right? Which is why you have to hit all four uh, because some products have an easy time doing the investment phase, but a really hard time doing the variable reward phase or a hard time doing the action phase. The, the ones that nail it, have all four. So that's why it's so important to know what those four are and ask yourself in for your business, if you're building a habit forming product, if you want your product to be something that people use every single day and share with their friends and becomes the kind of successful product, like, you know, these, these tech behemoths mm -hmm. got to have all four traits. All right. Well, I guess that I will be reading hooked soon and yeah, that'll be next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But well, now getting into indistractable, I would like yeah. to start um, by, by defining what, distractions are and what traction is and so yeah. i would like you to, to share that 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 idea sure yeah that's a, that's a terrific place to start uh because distraction is one of these words that we think we know but when we dive <laughs> deeper eh, many people don't really understand i didn't understand it at first either the best way to understand if you know something is ask yourself do i know what the opposite of that thing is so what's the antonym of distraction most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus but that's not exactly right. The opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both traction and distraction end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding mm -hmm. us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but rather it is an action that we take. So traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from your values, and further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is actually super important because I would argue Any action can be traction or distraction based on one word, forethought, okay? If you plan, whatever it is you plan to do is fine as long as it's consistent with what you said you were going to do. That's what becoming indistractable is all about. You know, we all know that it's a terrible thing to be a liar. We'd never want to be called a liar. And yet we lie to ourselves all the time. We say we're going to work out. We don't. We say we're going to eat right. Not so much. We, we say we're going to spend quality time with our family and friends without getting distracted. Yeah, not so much. We say we're going to sit down at our desk and definitely work on that hard project. We're not <laughs> going to procrastinate, but we delay 20, 30, 45 minutes later, we're still doing something else. So why do we lie to ourselves, right? The most important people in our life. So an indistractable person is as honest with themselves as they are with others. So the reason that this distinction between traction and distraction is so important 
is that anything can be traction or distraction based on whether we plan for it. So for example, I used to think that when I sat down at my desk, as long as I did work, then I was being productive, right? Mm-hmm. When, what I didn't realize is even though I would say to myself, okay, I, I've got that big, important project I have to work on, that thing that I've been delaying, that big thing that the hard work I know I have to do, I'd sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to get started. No more distraction, no more procrastination. But first, let me check some email. Email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Let me just uh, you know Google something real quick. Let me just do those easy tasks on my to-do list as opposed to getting to work on the important and hard work that I have to do to move my life and career forward. So just because something's a work task doesn't mean it's not distraction. In fact, that's the most dangerous type of distraction, the distraction that you don't even realize is happening to you. Because we say, oh, it's work. It's okay. I'm doing, I'm checking email. That's a work-related mm. task. No, that's the worst kind of distraction because you don't even realize you've been duped. So uh, just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it can't become a distraction. Many distractions are work-related tasks, but they're not what we plan to work on. And conversely, there, you know, these days you hear about people saying, oh, you know, that some behaviors are worse than others. Oh, if you play Facebook, if you're on Facebook or you mm-hmm. play video games, that's bad, right? That's evil. Don't do that. It's rotting your brain. Ridiculous. Stupid. Don't listen to those people. Do you want to play video games? If you want to scroll Facebook, if you want to be on Instagram, do it. Great. There's nothing wrong with it. As long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values, not someone else's. Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. Don't feel guilty about enjoying Instagram. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a great tool, but don't use it on somebody else's schedule. Use it according to your schedule and your values. Yeah, that was an idea that I love from the book. Like, yeah, time that is planned to be wasted isn't wasted time because you actually are creating traction and right. that's what you plan to do. Um, right. Yeah, so I would like to get into like, why do we get distracted and what does that have to do with pain? Mm, Yeah, so we talked about traction and distraction. Now we have to talk about the triggers, the things that prompt us to get distracted, right? Mm -hmm. What, what, What comes before the distraction? So most people, when they think about distraction, they think about what we call the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings all of the things in our outside environment that can lead us off track. You know, they say, oh, I meant to meant to do my homework. I meant to do this project, but, you know, my phone rang or I got a notification or something at my kid bothered me or my boss bothered me. We blame the things outside of us. But turns out that is only 10% of the times that you get distracted. Are you distracted because of an external trigger? So what's the other 90%? 90% of the time studies find that we get distracted. It's not because of an external trigger, but rather it's because of an internal, internal. trigger. What is an internal mm. trigger? An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. This is 90% of the time studies find that we go off track. It's because we don't know how to deal with an uncomfortable sensation, which is why I say, Time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Time management is pain management. If you don't know what is that internal trigger that you are escaping from, you are always going to get distracted from something, my friend, whether it's Mm -hmm. too much food, too much booze, too much Facebook, too much football, it doesn't matter. You're going to find something to take you off track if you don't understand the pain you are looking to escape. So the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering those internal triggers before they become your master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
actually before getting into how to actually master those internal triggers one thing that i want to mention and that i think can be related to this is that like in matthew mcconaughey's book uh in green lights he talks about this idea of like uh not staying in the surface of things and going like going deep not not just being superficial but actually yeah. like going granular and understanding stuff and i think that is well that has to do with this like we actually gotta understand what is that the triggers um or distractions to actually like deal with it in the in the right way and solve it um yeah yeah and well, so in the, I think that's part two of the book. You you actually talk about how to master um, internal triggers, and you talked about this idea of creating play, and also like acceptance while you maybe get distracted or while you um, do something. I would like you to dive into those, but specifically also like into the part of play because that's something yeah. like interesting. Yeah, totally. So there's, uh, you know, the book is full of, of, of uh, research, right? It's not, uh, mm -hmm. hey, this is my, my technique that works for me. It's going to work for everyone because I say so. It's backed by peer-reviewed studies. You see in the book, there's 30 pages of uh, mm -hmm. citations to peer-reviewed studies. I'm really big on the science. Uh, so one of the, the interesting uh, bits of research I found was how uh, we can bring play to a situation to, uh, to help us uh, um, deal with the discomfort of having to do a task. You know, we hear a lot in self-help books, oh, get into flow or make a <laughs> habit out of something. No, it doesn't always work. <laughs> and I'll tell you why it doesn't work. You know, flow, this concept of flow, you know, it's great if you enjoy the task, right? Mm -hmm. Then flow is easy. You know, you we dog in the Chicxulub follows around surfers. Of course, surfers can get into flow. Surfing's fun. How do I get into flow when I have to write you know, a homework assignment that I don't feel like doing. That sucks. You can't get into flow when you're doing something like that. Oh, or let's make it into a habit. You hear people say, oh, turns everything into a habit. And I, I write about habits. I've been researching habits for years. And I'm telling you, we have been misleading people around habits. People think that they can turn anything into a habit. And that's just not true. That there's only some behaviors that can be turned into habits. The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. So if you're trying to lose weight, Losing weight is hard, okay? Mm -hmm. Exercising and dieting sucks. It is not easy. It's not going to be something you turn into a habit. Writing a book. Listen, I've written two bestsellers and I've written thousands of articles. I've been published in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review. Writing is hard. It is not a habit. Don't try and make it a habit. Why? Because when you people think that they're trying to make something into a habit, it's shorthand for I want to have done it. That's what it means. Whenever you hear somebody say, oh, uh, I want to turn that into a habit or just make that into a habit. It's basically what they're saying is that hard behavior that I don't want to do. Uh, I wish it was done already, but that's not how you do hard things. Hard things don't get done because you, you, you want them to be easy. Hard things mm -hmm. get done because you're willing to power through and deal with the discomfort. So we need a different technique. And the reason this is so toxic, by the way, is that when people think, oh, I can turn anything to a habit. And then they see 30 days later, two months later, three months later, hey, this still sucks. I hate this. They think that they're broken. Mm -hmm. They think that they did something wrong and they didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with them. It's a stupid technique that people have been misled to think that everything can be a habit. Everything can be flow. No, it can't yeah, because deliberate <laughs> practice, this whole idea around the 10,000 hour rule is the opposite of a habit. A habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. Deliberate practice requires us to focus intensely on a task 
so we can learn from our mistakes. They are exact opposites. So if we want to get better at something, we have to not try and escape it with flow or habit. We have to lean into the discomfort and learn how to deal with it. And one of the strategies that can help us deal with those internal triggers and master them so they don't master us is play. That play turns out the research finds, to my surprise, doesn't have to be fun. It doesn't even have to be enjoyable, right? I didn't know that, but play doesn't yeah, have either. to be enjoyable. Right. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing concept. You know, you hear many times that the way to make something into play is to put a spoonful of sugar on it, right? The Mary Poppins method, just have mm. a reward, have a, have a, some kind of treat at the end, and then you'll want to do it. Well, yes and no, it works sometimes for things you have to do just once, but if it's a repeat task, especially if one that requires creativity, that does not work. In fact, it backfires. We know that when we reward people with what we call extrinsic rewards, the spoonful of sugar technique, they rush through it. They don't do a very good job because they just want to do the minimum mm -hmm. amount of effort to get the reward. So it's not always a good idea to use the spoonful of sugar technique. Instead, what we want to do is to find ways not to depart the, the, the experience, not to try and escape it, but to dive into it more intensely. And so some of these tactics include learning more about the task, focusing on the nuances of the task and making what we call a sandbox. You know, if you think about it, a bunch of dirt is not fun, but somehow <laughs> if you put dirt in a box, okay, and you give a few toys to interact with the dirt in fun ways, kids go crazy. They love it, right? It's now it's a park, right? Like now it's mm -hmm. a sandbox. It's fun because it has constraints. So we can take all sorts of experiences, the ones that we don't find very fun, by adding constraints and looking for variability. Those are the two secrets of play. Add constraints and look for variability. If you can do that, you can make all sorts of experiences that would otherwise be drudgery into play. And again, the purpose of play is not to make it ah, ha, ha, so fun, <laughs> right? Like yeah. a lot of tasks are not gonna be fun, except that fact, but by using play, we can use that power to focus our attention long enough to make sure we don't get distracted. That's the point. Yeah, and I mean, it's initially, I would say, counterintuitive, like to think of playing not as fun, because I mean, since a young age, we're yeah. we're we It can be that, fun, it just doesn't have to mm, be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's an important point. Um, and well, uh, so what about like, uh, deep work and actually like focusing a lot on something you also mentioned like uh, building constraints about around what you're doing how, how would you do that like uh when writing a book or when yeah like doing a task that requires like a lot of focus and that might be even yeah boring um yeah like on the surface yeah so so by adding constraints for example an example that i use all the time is instead of putting on your to-do list by the way to-do lists are one of the worst mm -hmm. things you can do for your personal productivity it's a terrible technique uh partially because there's no constraints right a to-do list mm -hmm. you can add more and more and more and more things to a to-do list i've never met anybody in my life who finishes everything <laughs> on the to-do list it doesn't exist but we keep using this stupid technique that day after day is broken it doesn't work but we keep doing it 
because and it actually has some very harmful consequences. You can see, by the way, there's a pattern here. The book is full of me telling you why 90% of what we think is true is bullshit. <laughs> because <laughs> the science doesn't support a lot of these mm-hmm. mainstream techniques that we get, you know, we hear some guru say and we think, oh, this is the truth when actually mm-hmm. the science says otherwise. So I'm trying to wake people up here and empower them to see that not all these techniques that you've been taught are any good. So one of the worst techniques is running your life on a to-do list. And by the way, to be very clear, I'm all for getting things out of your head. That's a great idea. Getting things out of your head and writing them down, awesome idea. But schedule, uh, but, but planning your life on a to-do list, meaning if you wake up in the morning and you look at your to-do list before you figure out what's on your calendar, you made a big mistake. If you write things down, but you don't put them in your schedule, you're screwed. Mm. You already messed up. Because what happens is over time, when we come home, And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we look at this list of things we did not finish. It sends a message to our psyche that we can't do it. See, right? Like you came home, look at all this stuff you still didn't do, loser. And we start believing. This is why you hear people saying things like, oh, I have a short attention span, or I have an, a, 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 a no good at time management, or uh, you know, all kinds of cockamamie excuses that people make up because they have taught themselves over the years that they're no good because this to-do list method has told them they are incapable of finishing what they say they're going to do. Yeah, so do, rather do you think, than- do, do you think that has to do also with people saying that they are always busy? Always busy. Tell me more. What do you mean? Yeah, so I mean, many of my friends, many of my teachers, many, many, many people I know um, say they are always busy or that they do not have time to do something, but they do not like base what they do on a schedule. They base mm. what they do on a to do list. Do, do you think yeah. that it? Hmm. Well, being busy shouldn't be an excuse, uh, but reprioritizing should be a reason, right? There's nothing wrong with saying, Uh, you know what? If that's just not a priority for me right now, you could probably find a nicer way of saying it. <laughs> that's 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 probably what they're saying. They're saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm busy." Well, no, because you're also watching Netflix at night too. So how busy yeah. are you really? It's just that it's not a priority, which is fine. Which is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't do everything. We have to prioritize. We have to decide for ourselves how we can live our life according to our values. Which means we have to make trade-offs. Yeah, I actually wanted you to get into like this idea of value. So you actually mentioned how to like uh, live your values and create traction towards them. But uh, have you got any suggestions or any also book recommendations like to help define values and have and help yeah. define like North Stars? Yeah, let's dive right in. So the best way to understand, uh, you know, how to how, how to make sure you live your values is to first understand what values are. So let's define what values are. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. That's what values are, attributes of the person you want to become. So what you need to do is to sit down and ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time according to these three life domains. And the three life domains I talk about in the book are you, you're at the center of these three life domains, then your relationships, and then your work. So what I want you to do is to take out your calendar in the week ahead and ask yourself, how much time would the person I want to become spend on taking care of themselves, the you domain? You're the most important person in your world. So how much time would the person you want to become spend on whatever you think is important? So uh, if you value your physical health, 
Okay, do you have time in your schedule for exercise? Do you have a bedtime? We all know how important sleep is. How many of us have a bedtime, <laughs> right? It's super important. Is it in your calendar? Uh, if you, by the way, I'm not saying it needs to be important. If it doesn't matter to you, I don't care. It's up to you, mm -hmm. right? Nobody can tell you what your values are, but don't say one thing and do something else. Turn your yeah. values yeah. into time. If you say that reading, you know, I'm sure, you know, many of your fans, they say, oh, reading is so important, but do you have time <laughs> in your calendar when you're going to spend re time reading? right? It's very easy. You can crank through all kinds of amazing books. And, you know, you and I both agree about this, that you know, mm. one of the best ways you can spend your money is on books because yeah, you're, sure. you're paying uh -huh. for years of research for $10, $20. It's the, probably the best investment you could ever make. It is. <laughs> but do you have that time in your schedule or do you just say, oh yeah, I, I'm a person who values knowledge. Well, but do you, <laughs> is it on your calendar? So then comes relationships, right? How many of us make time for friends? Eh, whenever you know, as opposed to saying, no, these are important relationships in my life, whether it's my friends, my kids, my parents, my siblings, have time in your calendar, especially now that many of us are, are isolated socially, at least make time on your calendar to have, you know, Zoom calls or something with mm -hmm. the people who are important to you in your life, put that time in your schedule. And then finally, when it comes to work, there are two kinds of work. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. Most people spend most of their time doing reflect, reactive work. Reactive work is reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, mm -hmm. reacting to all kinds of stuff happening outside them. And there's almost a kind of a habit that people get into in not having to think, right? Remember, a, a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. Many people become so reactive that all day long, they just wait and, uh, and are almost comforted by their email telling them what to do, their messages telling them what to do, the boss telling them what to do. And they don't think to themselves, wait a minute, what do I need to do? What is important to me mm -hmm. to, to move my career forward? So you can't spend your entire day doing reactive work. Don't get comfortable in that habit. Spend some time, at least some time in your day, doing reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only get done without distraction. Being creative, strategizing, planning, thinking for God's sakes, requires you to be to work without distraction so that time has to be planned and protected yeah well uh, while reading your book so previously before reading your book i read essentialism and while reading your book i was able like to relate many concepts and one of them was this idea of like uh dedicating time to reflect on what is important and then also like yeah time to actually do and then the, and there's this idea of uh, reactive work, which I hadn't heard, but yeah, it does make sense. And then one one thing that I wanted like to ask, um, because I'm it's like a little conflict in my head. So when scheduling, um, there are people as uh, Mark Zuckerberg who tell that you should do the easiest task first um, because you have more energy and whatever, and you can like uh, move on faster. But then uh, we've got ideas, uh, the one in it, that frog, which which tell you that like you should start with the hardest task. How do you suggest that people like actually schedule their day? Uh, depend should they do that depending on their uh, energy levels or uh, on yeah on what? Yes. Yeah, on their energy levels. It doesn't matter. Oh. It doesn't matter. That you as long as you do what you say you're going to do. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're if you do the hardest thing first, the hardest thing last, if you watch video games or play video games, if you watch television, if you pray, meditate, paint, look at the ceiling, it doesn't matter. 
You can change that, but not in the moment, okay? Whatever it is you say you're going to do, do that. Whatever it is you say you're going to do. If you want to play video games, you say, I'm going to play video games for an hour. Do it. Enjoy it without guilt. It doesn't matter what you do as long as it's done with intent. So anything you plan to do is traction. Everything else is distraction. So what people should do is to play around with this, right? So on Monday, do the hardest task first. See how that works out. On Tuesday, do the easiest task first. See how that works out. And then learn over time. This is another reason why to-do lists are awful because to-do lists have no feedback mechanism. This is why what we have is it's called the planning fallacy that uh, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman did these studies that found that people on average take three times longer to finish a task than they think they will. Because traditionally, when we think about a task and how long it takes to finish, there's no feedback. We don't learn how long things take us to do. The only way to learn is to make a prediction right? Like a scientist, a scientist makes a hypothesis, runs an experiment, and then looks at the results and then runs another experiment, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we have to do with our schedules. So when you make a schedule for the day, don't touch it, right? Once it's set, you follow it. But for the next day, you can do whatever you want. So at that night, you know, the night before, set your schedule, set how, what you want to do for the day, and then execute that. And then stop and take, some, take stock of, of, of how it worked out. Right. So for me, you know, I, I do this once a week. I set my schedule for an entire week. So every night, I'm sorry, every Sunday night, mm -hmm. I sit down for, it takes me 10 minutes maximum. And I look at the week ahead and I say, oh, okay, you know what? I have that meeting here and that cuts into my usual writing time. So let me move that writing time a little bit because I want to make sure I do that. But oh, it doesn't look like I have enough time for this other project. So that's okay. I want to move that over here and I want to make sure I have time for my daughter. And that exercise is very important to me. So I have to have that on my schedule. So I make my schedule for the week ahead. And once it's set, it's set. I don't touch it. Definitely not in the day of. You don't make changes in the day of. But many times I'll at the end of the day say, oh, you know what? I need some more time. I didn't get enough time to do X, Y, Z. Let me make small adjustments. Or, you know, recently I used to write uh, first thing in the morning. Recently I changed it. Now I'm experimenting with writing in the afternoons. It doesn't matter. The, the best schedule is the one you follow. The best schedule is the one you follow. Yeah. And well, you know, so last week, actually last Sunday, I was planning my week. I was trying to like to actually implement Indistractable and I did. And on Monday, I uh, went through my day uh, as I planned to do. But then on Tuesday, um, one, one, one person who is very close to me uh, was diagnosed with COVID. So I had to go in, in on Tuesday to you know get uh, get the test and see if it was positive or negative and well I'm negative but the point is that like life came up and and yeah I, I wasn't able like on Tuesday to actually follow my schedule as I planned what should we do in those cases yeah so if it's something that is truly not predictable and I would I would put this in the one percent of distractions that is truly not predictable. You can't mm -hmm. predict if somebody close to you got, got COVID. So that's the kind of scenario where, yeah, you do what you need to do. It's a true emergency that you could not have predicted. You take care of it. At the end of the day, you take stock and you make adjustments for the rest of your week. So everything doesn't get derailed. You, you make adjustments for the days that you have in the you know, remaining in the week. Mm -hmm. That's about 1% of distractions, maybe <laughs> even less right? The kind of stuff that I typically hear is not, oh, my friend got COVID. It's I was stuck in traffic. Traffic's pretty predictable, right? You have traffic every single day, right? Mm -hmm. What if your hero 
said, Hey, um, I, I need to meet you for breakfast. Do you want to meet, you know, Michael Jordan or Oprah, or I don't know, somebody super famous says, Hey, you want to get together with me for breakfast? It's at 9 a.m. at this restaurant, and you know that there's going to be traffic on the way there. So what do you do? That's that's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it, traffic could take you 15 minutes, it could take you an hour. So what do you do? You build in buffer time, right? Yeah, you can buffer. predict mm-hmm. the unpredictable. Right. You don't know how long it's going to take, but you build in buffer time. So what we find is the vast majority of distractions uh, are actually things that occur again and again and again that we can plan for. Now, so once in a while, there's distractions that, oh, my God, just came out of nowhere. Lightning strikes. It happens. But we don't want to make sure we we don't want to think that these exceptions are the rule. They are not. Do not Mm -hmm. fall in this trap that we call whataboutism. Whataboutism is when people say, okay, yeah, you know, I know you spent five years of researching this. I know that this is going to work, but what about (laughs) COVID? So I'm going to throw away the book. No, (laughs) don't make the one exception out of a million, a reason to not use this methodology. Yeah, well, thanks for for the clarification. And I will try to restructure the rest of the week um, later today. And well, I want now to get into like external triggers. And mm-hmm. I think that, you, yeah, through the chat, through the part of the book in which you talk about external triggers, you talk mostly about like technology. And two things that I loved uh, were uh, like, um, yeah, leaving empty your desktop. And that's actually something that I did. And also nice. like, yeah. And, and then like making your phone in something indestructible. Yes. Um. I would like you to to explain some of these ideas so that also people listening can. I would love for you to explain the ideas. I want to hear what was most helpful to you because you actually put this into practice. Yeah, well, so with the desktop, I before like reading this part of the book, I had like my desktop was full of images and videos and recordings and yeah, it was full of many things. Um, But then like that also made me be like more confused when i open when i opened my computer and when i wanted to do something but then what i did was that i like reorganized all that information all those images and all those recordings into smaller folders and then i sent those into another file which is not in my desk in my desktop so basically my desktop is now free and nice. i have no distractions there and I uh, I added another uh, background for for my desktop, which is which has like less distractions. It's just like the Earth and space, and that's it. Like Excellent. basically black. And with my phone, the thing is that like you suggest, um, I, I think it was a process of four hours, right? And it was something like um, I, I don't really remember like the words, but it was like uh, yeah, identifying on w- w- the apps and then. Uh, removing some and then mm-hmm. like reorganizing and what i did was that i did de- delete some of the apps i had but n- not all of them and what i did was that so in 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 apple in the, the iphone there's this option like to not show an app in the in the main screen so so what i did was to uh, uh make that function uh available i, I used that function and so my my phone is so you can basically see here that i've got only this yeah this. there we go yes, th- that's it but then if i want like to use another app i have to do this and then um yeah look for for that app and those were like Excellent. the main things that i have been applying with external Excellent. triggers 
Um, yeah, that's correct. But yeah, with- so external triggers, by the way, you know, let, we got to put this in per, into perspective that the external triggers are, again, they're about 10% of the distractions, but they're easy to fix, right? So turns out two thirds mm-hmm. of people with a smartphone, two thirds never change their notification settings. I mean, come on, how can we yeah. say that technology uh-huh. is addicting us when we haven't taken five minutes just to turn off yes. the notification settings? So those are some very simple things you can do. It's not, it's not the, you, you can't do that in isolation. Many people think, oh, I'm going to turn off the notifications, therefore I won't get distracted. But then they realize that 90% of distraction starts from within those internal mm-hmm. triggers. But after you've mastered the internal triggers, after you've made time for tractions, then we want to go ahead and take care of those external triggers. And it's something you can do once you knock it out, just like you did, you know, clear your desktop, uh, re- uh, uh, turn your phone into an indistractable phone, probably didn't take you more than what? 45 minutes, maybe an hour to, no, to do it. No, like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. 30 minutes. Fantastic. And that's it. Like now your phone is not going to be a source of distraction because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's amazing. People will like, you know, read the instruction manual for how to use their blender. Uh, and they use that maybe like once a month, but they don't they don't take the time to really configure their phone in a way that actually serves them as opposed to us serving the phones. Yeah, that was something very interesting in the book. Like, I, I, again, I don't remember the exact the exact quote, but it was something like, um, the like if a trigger if you let a serve a trigger, then it's something mm-hmm. like leading you to distraction. And if a trigger right. serves you, then it's something leading you to attraction. That's that right. that was yeah something that I loved. And yeah. now I would, because look, um, these devices aren't bad. You know, if the device mm-hmm. is helping you do what you say you want to do, it's wonderful, right? The the, the technology is great. So we have to be careful of. Oh, technology is melting our brains. Technology is evil. It's not the technology. <laughs> it's how we use it. It's just a tool like any other. So exactly. It's, if it's leading you towards traction, if it's leading to what you said you were going to do, it's serving you. If it's leading you towards distraction, then you are serving it. Mm-hmm. And well, like with my generation, with Gen Z, uh, we, we are told many times that we are uh, so distracted and everything because of technology. And I would like you like to explain uh, that, that that idea in your perspective and mm-hmm. also like share why is it important for us, like for, for the new generation uh, to to become indistractable for the future? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty optimistic. You know, the press likes to tell the same mm-hmm. story again, 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 why your generation is screwed. And I think it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I think Gen Z, I'm telling you, I mean, I used to teach at Stanford for many years. And uh, I think the generations keep getting better and better. And I think especially your generation is incredibly empathetic, uh, incredibly connected, uh, incredibly smart. Like this is the smartest generation in history, (laughs) right? Uh, I'm super optimistic. You know, I got to tell you, when I'm asked to come into companies and help employees become indistractable, it's not the younger employees that are so-called addicted to technology and they're always on the TikTok and the Facebook and all that <laughs> stuff. No, you know who has the problem? It's the older people, <laughs> right? It's the older people who haven't learned manners around how to use technology. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, among younger people, I-, I know what they say to each other, right? Like you go out with your friends and you're like, hey, how was that date? And they're like, oh, that girl, she wouldn't stop checking her device. Oh, what a loser. Right. Like we know younger people know that looking at your phone when you're meant to be on a date or meant to, you know, go out to lunch with your friends is rude. It's mm-hmm. old people who haven't learned this. Right. It's boomers <laughs> who haven't learned that that's rude. And that's who does it. 
And so we need to play our part in educating people like, look, this is, un, this, is, this, is, this is unacceptable behavior, that there's a place and a time to use technology. Now, where I think uh, the older generation, what they don't understand is that many times when kids use their phones in front of you, it's because they don't want to talk to you. Yeah. That's why yes. they do it. <laughs> it's not the phone. It's around, around their friends. They don't use their phone. It's around you. <laughs> so there's a whole section in the book on how to raise indistractable kids. And I think we need to go past these surface level blame and shame analysis, medicalize and moralize and actually get to the root cause of the problem. Yes, because actually like blaming and all that leads to more use of the phone and it's just like a, a, a downward cycle. Right. And well, uh, like I, this has been like uh, what I wanted to talk about, like indistractable mainly. And we talked about many more things. Um, now, like before getting into some of my last questions, uh, before letting you go, uh, would you like to add anything to this part of indistractable? No, go for it. Yeah. I'm curious what else, what else you have. All right, cool. Um, so my podcast is called the transformation journey and my, yeah, one of my last questions always is like, how do you define transformation and how do you approach it? And in your case, I would like you like to answer it in how you do it in your personal life, but how you are doing it with these tools that you are yeah, sharing to the world, um, yeah. in this case with indestructible. Yeah. So how, how do I, what, how do I define transformation? Mm -hmm. hmm. So I think, I think, uh, change is the only constant, as we say, that we have to anticipate change. And the way we change is by transforming ourselves, that humans have two amazing qualities, that whenever we have change, we adapt and we adopt, meaning we adapt to these new behaviors or these new changes in one way or the other. I mean, that's what makes our species uh, so successful, right? There's no other species mm -hmm. on the face of the earth that can survive anywhere on the face of the earth. We can live in the North Pole, we can live in the desert, we can live in space because we are eminently yes. adaptable. We, that is one of our most important defining traits as a species. And then we adopt, what do we adopt? We adopt new technologies to fix the bad aspects of the last generation of technology. So Paul Virilio, the philosopher said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. So every new technology, every transformation, every change has negative consequences along with the good mm -hmm. consequences. So yeah. smart people, optimists, the people who build the future, they don't say, oh, this is terrible. This is evil. The sky <laughs> is falling. Everything's horrible. That's what the news media wants you to believe. That's what losers want you to believe. Smart people say, hey, what can, what, what's, uh, what can I do to fix the problems? That's where the opportunity lies. Right. It's a big reason why I didn't become a journalist. Journalists just tell you about yeah. <laughs> all the crappy stuff. You never hear the good news because they know that sells, you know, that sells attention is mm. to tell you all the bad stuff. But the, the, the people who make the future see the problems as opportunities and yeah. they create this transformation by creating technology that we adopt to fix the last generation of technology. Yeah, I love that. I again, so I have been asking this question to many people and I had heard about like the idea of yeah, adapting, but not about the idea of adopting and yeah, like innovating with, with, with stuff that we are living. And so Nir, is there anything else you would like to add in, in general to the topic of hooked or to the indistractable or transformation or whatever? 
I appreciate it. Thank you. So if you want to learn more about uh, my work, you please visit my blog at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. It's N-I-R and far.com. So near and far.com. There's actually an 80 page uh, workbook there that's complimentary, totally free. Uh, we couldn't fit, fit it in the edition of the book, uh, but you can use it there. It's a great guide to help you become indistractable or you, whether you buy the book or not, doesn't matter. You can get that at nearfar.com. And my first book again is titled Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And that's for people building uh, good habits and indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life is about breaking these bad habits primarily the, the habit of distraction. Mm -hmm. Well, Nir, so thank you so much for coming again. And well, I will be trying to apply many of the things that we talked about.